turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you of where we have been. And then go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. First, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we ask that you would, through your Spirit, Help me to preach your word and help all of us to listen in ways that bring transformation, encouragement, and counsel into our lives. We are desperate for your word. We ask it in his name. Amen. The sixth beatitude after a couple weeks of break. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Jesus says this. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Today I want to give you hopefully what is a three part or three course meal. The appetizer, which like many appetizers is very simple. The main course, this is not a Florida main course of fish and maybe a little light salad. This is Midwestern meat and potatoes main course. Then we'll follow up with a little bit of dessert, a little application. How do you take it all home with you, which hopefully complements the main dish and the appetizer. You ready? Let's have the appetizer. And the question is very, very simple. What is biblical morality? You could even ask an even simpler question. What is Christianity primarily all about. I've entitled today's message on mud pies and a holiday at sea. And the title comes from one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, which not only gets at the central message of the entire Bible, but also gets at what the whole shebang of Christianity really entails. That is, for many people, both inside and outside the church, they think that Christianity is primarily about tamping down your desires. About squelching those things that the world says leads to joy and happiness. Oh, I guess I'm a Christian. That means I guess I can't do X, Y, and Z. Or as my old most famous adage puts it, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, right? This is a kind of Christianity that many of us were raised upon. That as many people believe that Christianity is simply a moralistic reigning of yourself in. But what if the central message of Christianity is starkly different? What if Christianity is really about awakening the awakening of God centered desires? The awakening of affections that move the heart. The awakening of deep truths that fill and stir the mind. The seeing and the hearing of such lavish promises of God that everything else in the world pales in comparison. What if Christianity is primarily about an awakening of God-centered appetites for the things of God? So that everything that you counted as joy Everything that you counted as beautiful, everything you counted as good, suddenly pales in comparison to knowing and pursuing Christ Jesus as Lord and all the things of God. So here's the quote, C.S. Lewis. 
He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what if the central question for a Christian man, for a Christian woman or a Christian teenager is this? How hot are your desires for the things of God? Are you consistently stoking the fire of your affections so they are red hot for Christ and the kingdom? Because if your desires, if your affections are red hot, then your behavior, then your obedience, you might even say, then your purity, then your holiness will tend to follow suit. Biblical morality, which we could discuss in terms of purity, in terms of holiness of life, is often not simply the result of the will. Christian obedience to the teachings of Jesus is not primarily or very simply about gritting your teeth and vowing to do better through the strength of your will. Rather, true biblical morality is the consequence, is the overflow of pursuing your joy in the Lord. It's found on the other side of pursuing satisfaction in God, of pursuing a red hot affection For the Lord. And if you do that, then purity, then obedience, then holiness. Christian, how hot are your affections? Christian, how hot is your desire for the Lord? That is the central question you must ask if you want to live a life of obedience. If you want to grow and have a growing relationship with The Lord stoke the fire of your affections, stoke the fire of your desire for the Lord. Will you say, how do I do that? How do I consistently stoke the fire of my affection and desire for the Lord? You say, it seems like it's human nature to cool off. It seems like it's easy to become what the book of Revelation says, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Be, to become indifferent, even apathetic to the things of God. Not only folks who have been in the church a small time, but those who have been in the church for years, even decades of their life. The good news is that today's beatitude includes a staggering promise that may help fuel your fire for the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest of one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, says this about Matthew 5, 8. He says, we come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of scriptures. And you ask, was Martin Lloyd-Jones given to hyperbole, to gross exaggeration? And I marshal forth the evidence he was a British preacher. He ended sentence not with explanation points, but with a calm period. So the staggering promise of this beatitude has often been called the beatific vision, the beautiful vision of seeing God. The beautiful vision is a promise of seeing 
God in this beatific vision utterly fascinated the medieval church. It utterly fascinated the early church. It utterly fascinated the Puritans of the 17th and 18th century. It's really only the modern church that we sort of shrug our shoulders at the beatific vision. Okay, what's next? What does it all have to do with me? It's all about me. But what if, what if what you truly need is to grab a clear vision of God in his glory to transform your life, to begin to be transformed from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the writer also gets at the same theme of this beatific vision. Without holiness, no one will see The Lord, even Job, there's a moment of lightning bolt of hope into his suffering life as he's going through trials and tribulations. He says this in Job chapter 19, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will what I will see God, the beatific vision, the most Lavish promise, perhaps, of any of the promises of Jesus in the Beatitudes. The beatific vision sustained Job as he wrestled with God, as he suffered and suffered trials of immense proportion. Did Job need self-help? Did Job need a better marriage? After all, his wife tells him, curse God and die. Did Job need better friends? His friends came to him and then they begin to open their mouths and tell him, Job, just just confess all your sin. We know that this all is coming down on your head because of you. Did he need all those? Maybe. But what Job really knew, what he knew he needed more than anything was a hope that sustained him, the vision of God in all his glory. The beatific vision was contemplated by the writer of Hebrews to sustain our pursuit of holiness. What can motivate us For holiness, holiness of life, holiness of mind and body and soul. To be holy, you need to embrace this vision of God in all of his glory. Puritan pastors in ages past regularly used to admonish their congregations to contemplate the beatific vision. This promise of seeing God. Richard Baxter, a famous Puritan pastor in England, counseled his congregants to fetch one walk daily in the new Jerusalem. What great counsel. To fetch one walk daily in the new Jerusalem. In other words, contemplate a vision of God in his glory. The Puritan Isaac Ambrose in 1658 said this, Consider that looking unto Jesus is the work of heaven. If then we like not this work, How will we then live in heaven? Prepare yourself, Ambrose was saying. Prepare yourself for heaven. How? By looking, by longing to see God in all of his glory. Set your affection, set your sight upon, set your love on the God of the beatific vision. Let this majestic vision of God slowly begin to transform your life. Often... When we want to change our lives, what do we do? I would suggest that we tinker around at the fringes. 
That is, we play around at the periphery. We make small, incremental changes in our lives that usually amount to nothing. Why not hit at the sinner? Why not contemplate God's beatific vision? Why not take a stroll daily in the new Jerusalem? It sustains you in suffering. It runs with you as you pursue holiness. And it sets before your eyes a vision of the glory of God, which stokes your affections and desires for the things of God. Friends, stop settling for change at the periphery. Begin at the center with the beatific vision. But you say, Pastor, settle down. We feel like you haven't preached in a couple of weeks, and that would be true. But you want to lay a trap for your pastor. You say, hey, pastor, I know that Jesus promised it. I know that Job foresaw it. I know that the writer of Hebrews counseled it. But what about Moses? You lay a trap and you say to me, did God not say to Moses, pastor Jason, in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. What do you got to say about that? I go one further. The Apostle Paul describes God as one who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Even the beloved uh, Apostle John, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. So there's an apparent conundrum here. Will we see God or will we not? Is God's being inexhaustible so that we can never contemplate it and see it fully? Yes. But do we see God's being inexhaustibly and fully in Christ? Yes. In heaven, will we continue to explore and see a vision of God so great, so glorious, so majestic that it will take all eternity to plumb its depths, to see and to understand and to experience? Yes. So this is the appetizer. Stoke the fire of your affections and desires for God. Then purity, then holiness, then obedience will begin to characterize your life. Here's the main course. We could go on and on here, but we don't have time. It's an idea and it goes like this. A progressive vision of God, the beatific vision actually lies anchored within salvation history. That is, God is the divine tutor who leads his people progressively, slowly, but surely to the beatific vision of God and glory. Let me back up this idea by looking at the life of Moses. Four times, God experiences and appears before uh, Moses in the book of Exodus. First time. Exodus chapter 3. God calls to Moses from the burning bush. How does Moses respond? God, it's so great to be in your presence. I've been longing my whole life to see you in all your glory. No! He's terrified and scared. And since Moses did write this book of Exodus, I think he probably left out that he peed on himself. He was terrified. Why? Moses had not yet been what I would call habituated, what the second century theologian Irenaeus calls habituated or accustomed to being in the very presence of God's glory. So Moses is very, very afraid. 
And verse 6 of Exodus 3 says this, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Second time, God appears to Moses is after the Exodus. The people of God have arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God instructs Moses to consecrate the people. And so there is a requirement of purification, of washing their clothes, indicating that God is about to appear before the people in a more direct manner. And it's interesting what Exodus 19.11 says, For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Literally, before the eyes of the people. But how does God appear? In the midst of thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain, the sight of God still remains veiled. And God actually tells Moses, go down. You better warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look. And many of them perish. And so God tells Moses, you better warn the people. They might wander up the mountain, wander up into the cloud, and then they're going to perish because I in all my glory am there. Third time, God appears to Moses is in Exodus chapter 24. A cloud again on Mount Sinai. But Moses now enters the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai. Spends an incredibly 40 days, 40 nights with the Lord. Fourth time, look how much has changed. Look at how bold Moses is by Exodus 33. He began his journey with the Lord in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, terrified, scared to be in the presence of the glory of God. And now what does he say in Exodus 33? God, show me your glory. So what is God doing with Moses? What is God doing with all of his children? What does God long to do with me and with you? There's a progressive unfolding of this beatific vision as it unfolds in salvation history. God longs to habituate us to his presence. God longs to habituate you to his presence just like he worked with Moses until Moses could say, I want to see you, O Lord. God, show me your glory. God says, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And it will pass by you with all of my glory, but not my face. You can see my back as I pass by. This is a progressive unfolding of the beatific vision as it unfolds again within salvation history. We used to walk with God in the cool of the day. The fall, the sin marred and and corrupted that relationship. So God is now continuing to be the divine tutor who longs to lead us. Remember, you are not meant to make mud pies in the slum. You are meant for a holiday at sea. And so this beatific vision, we understand that it quenches our thirsts, takes our breath away, satisfies our deepest longings for joy. And so it is quite significant that in the fullness of time, Within the same salvation history which we have witnessed Moses, that John the Beloved disciple says this, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh, referring to Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. This progressive unfolding of God's glory is now climaxing beautifully with Jesus. So that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with an amazing unveiled faces. The Old Testament would never in a million years understand this. Unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. In other words, take a stroll in the new Jerusalem. Why? With unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. And so there's something about seeing. There's something about seeing the vision of God in all his glory that Paul says begins to work its way out in your life to transform you. Not at the periphery, not at the edges of your life, but right at the center. The dessert is this. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggested the trouble with all of us is our divided heart. One part of me wants to know God and worship God and please God, but another part wants something else. What do you do with that something else? I would suggest that a pure heart is actually indispensable for living out the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says later on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, But I tell you, what does he say? He mentions, you shall not murder. But then he says, but I say unto you, everyone who is angry with his brother, beware. Judgment. Jesus takes it to the next level, which is a heart level. Not only external behavior, but Jesus longs for you to have a pure heart. And so for for those struggling with bitterness, with resentment, with anger on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis... These folks are really struggling to maintain a pure heart. Next, Jesus says in the very same Sermon on the Mount later on, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, external behavior. But I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So those struggling also with issues of sensuality and sexuality are really struggling To maintain a pure heart. It's the same on the positive side in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. What might be called the spiritual disciplines. When you give to the poor, when you give to the needy. Sound no trumpet, Jesus says, like the hypocrites do. When you pray, don't go out on the street corner. What is Jesus getting at? Both in our negative sinful behavior, then in our positive affections and desires for the Lord. What God looks at is a pure heart. And so Jesus is not simply interested in external behaviors alone, but where they all begin. And so let me show you how a typical Christian tries to conquer what the older theologians used to call sins of passion, right? How a typical Christian fights the sins of passion. We're here, we're talking about anger, lust. You could throw gluttony in there, a whole host of sins of passion. First, just rein your desires in. Do a battle with your will. Just try real hard. You should know, though, however, that the will is also fallen. That from which you choose is also fallen. So does this look like a very good advice to just fight this a one-pronged war against these sins of passion? No. Lose, give up the fight. Fail to find purity and holiness in life. This Christian is fighting primarily with the will and the will alone. On the other hand, 
Let me show you how the Bible counsels you to fight sins of passion. The Bible counsels you to awaken godly affections and desires. In other words, to increase your appetite for the things of God. You're to do battle, not simply with your will, although the will is involved, but with God-centered joy and satisfaction found in God. How you battle is with superior appetites. You sometimes lose, but always repent. And remind yourself that you, in your anger, in your lust, in your gluttony, you are not meant for food, you are not meant for anger, you are not meant for lust. You are not meant to make mud pies in the slum. You are meant for a holiday on the high seas to enjoy God and Him alone. So now what do you do? When you fall, you rekindle godly desires. You fight the sins of passion. Get this. By awakening stronger passions. By stoking the fire of a greater appetite for God. And you pray. You pray like David prayed. Who was called a man after God's own heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. In other words, awaken within me, O Lord, a red hot appetite for the things of God. On the other side of that, there's obedience, there's holiness, there's purity. Let me leave you with one further thought. It comes from Dale Bruner. He writes this. Every single struggle for purity through obedience to Jesus' commands is an investment in a clear knowledge of God. Let me say that again. Every struggle for purity through obedience to Jesus' commands, is an investment in a clear knowledge of God. Friends, that is a great investment. The beatific vision, the ultimate goal of the Christian life, this beautiful vision of seeing God in all His glory. It's what Moses longed for. It's what John says, we have seen His glory in Christ. This is the end of our earthly pilgrimage. And so the tell us what's on the other side as we contemplate that kicks back and begins to change us in the here and now. This is a kind of change that is not marked at the periphery, at the very edges of your life. It captures your very heart. It captures your affections and your desires, which then change you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to teach us and instruct us of the way of the kingdom of God. Thank you for this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, we ask that prayer and that promise and that purity of heart for all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.